You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. Well, welcome back to our study in John. We finished our time last week in John 5, 18, where we found out that the Jews had progressed from persecuting Jesus to now actually seeking to kill him. And this desire is all based on Jesus calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Most people, when they're in trouble with the authorities, are going to try to do something to relax the situation, uh, like the invalid did uh, when he tattled on Jesus. He was trying to get himself out of trouble with the authorities. And if Jesus was concerned in that same way about his own welfare, now would be the perfect time to kind of lay low for a while or to walk back his words and say, hey guys, I wasn't really saying I'm equal with God. He could have stopped healing on the Sabbath and just stick to the other six days of the week and got in the good graces of the Jewish leaders, but Jesus actually does none of those things. We'll find in our passage today, he actually doubles down on what he's already said. He's really digging himself into a hole. We are, We probably know someone like that who's really good at digging themselves into a hole and don't know when to stop talking and makes things worse. We all know that person, and maybe you are that person. In a way, that's what Jesus is doing, but he's doing it on purpose. And we'll see this more and more over the next few chapters that Jesus is the primary instigator in these confrontations. His ministry is ramping up quickly. His popularity with the people will soon be at an all-time high, but his mission was never to be set up as a king or to win a popularity vote. His mission is to seek and to save the lost, and that will be accomplished only through his sacrificial death on the cross. So he doesn't walk back his words. He doesn't back down at all. Instead, in today's passage, we read one of the most straightforward discourses on his own identity and his relationship with the Father that we find in any of the Gospels. And so let's just go ahead and dive in and begin by reading in John 5, verse 19. It says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Himself authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice that verse 19 begins with the word, So. That tells me that this is a response to verse 18. Jesus has purposefully doubled downing, doubling down on calling God his Father. And here he makes three main claims about himself. Three claims about him and his relationship to God. The first is that he claims equality with God. Maybe to us modern readers, this is explicitly, this is um, 
not explicitly said here, but look at verse 19. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Who can do everything God the Father does? Can we? Not even close. We can and should try to live godly lives that reflect His character, but we can't do things everything like God does. Like the passage mentions of of giving life and passing judgment, we can't do those things. So for someone to say that they do every single thing the Father does means that they have the ability to do every single thing the Father does, and therefore they must be equal with God in order to do that. So make no mistake, Jesus is claiming equality with God. But also, don't misunderstand this to mean He's independent from the Father or in competition with the Father. Remember what we mentioned in Philippians 2.6 last week, where it tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead humbled Himself. Jesus is equal with God in divinity, but there's also a willing rank in the Godhead where the Son submits to the will of the Father in all things. And there's a beautiful harmony in it that's described here. From chapter 2, we began to track that theme that Jesus' sole focus is on accomplishing the will of the Father, and that's affirmed here in His own words. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. And the beauty is that the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. So the Son only does what the Father shows Him, but the Father shows Him all that He is doing. There's this perfect harmony in the relationship between the Father and the Son where the will of both is perfectly in step and in sync with one another. So the main claim is that Jesus is equal with God. And then we have the other two claims that really emphasize this central one. And the second is that Jesus claims he has the authority to give life. Look at verse 21. So as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is aiming at some of the most foundational truths about God, some of the most basic rock-solid beliefs in the Jewish mind about God. And one of those is that God is the author, the giver, the sustainer of life. He is the one who formed everything and gives life to every living creature. Deuteronomy 32:39. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. Nehemiah 9:6. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens and the heavens and all their hosts and the earth and all that is on it and the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. Job 33, 4, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. There is a foundational understanding for the Jews that God alone has the power to give life and to raise to life. So then Jesus is now saying, just as the father gives life, so now does the son. That's a bold statement. And he adds, to whom he will. The Son gives life to whom he will. This life is not given in return for something. It's not earned. This life is not a reward for doing something good. It isn't something given to you if you're special enough. It's to whom he will. Just like Jesus walking by the pool surrounded by a multitude of invalids, Jesus stopped and spoke to one man. Not because of anything that man had, or had done, but he chose to give him, this one man, a glimpse of life. He gives life to whom he will. And that may sound vague and unhelpful until you connect it to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The to whom he will isn't random. It's made up of those who hear and believe. The way to salvation is that simple, hearing and believing. 
The person who does that has eternal life, and it says he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now, notice it doesn't say he will pass from death to life, as in something that only happens in the future, but it says he has passed from death to life, as in something that has presently occurred. You could call this inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the last things or what will happen in the future. And we believe as Christians that we'll pass through death one day to be raised to eternal life on the other side. And we eagerly await that glorious resurrection to life with our Father in heaven. But there is truly a new life that we find now in this life. It's, it's the future coming, but it's happening right now. It'll be completed and fully realized then, but we get a taste of the future glory in this life right now. And if you're a believer, you've experienced that taste of eternal life. Verse 25 says, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, this is something that is presently occurring, which means the dead here doesn't refer to the actually physically dead, but it refers to those who are spiritually dead. That's the state of every single human being before coming to Christ. We're spiritually dead, unable to make any movement towards God. But what is it that causes life to suddenly spring forth from that eternal death? It is the life-giving voice of the Son of God. Just like God spoke into existence, life into existence in Genesis, so the Son's voice gives life to those who hear. And when it says hear, it implies a hearing and receiving and believing. We hear things all the time, but that doesn't mean we believe them. You watch CNN or Fox News or anything in between for a while, and you'll hear all sorts of things. But I certainly wouldn't recommend believing everything. My little kids at home, being five and under, they say a lot of things that are sometimes crazy. I listen and I hear, but I don't always believe. And sadly, there's many that hear the voice of Jesus. They hear the very words of life, but they don't believe. As we continue in this passage, we'll see how true this is for the Jews. But may we be people that hear the words of Jesus and believe. So Jesus claims equality with God. He claims authority to give life. And then he claims the authority to judge. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Again, Jesus is aiming at the foundational understanding about God and applying them to himself. The Jews clearly believed God would judge over all. Psalm 75, 7, but God is the judge. Psalm 9, 8, and he will judge the world in righteousness. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It was understood that God has the power and authority, really the sole power and authority to judge not only Israel, but all of mankind because he is the creator. He is the greatest authority and has the right to judge, even to the point of judging between salvation and condemnation. But Jesus says, now all judgment has been given to the Son. And maybe at first that sounds strange to you. The, the pop culture view of Jesus is certainly not as a judge. So is there a tension there between him as a judge and what we were told in John 3.17, that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it? Well, no, there's actually no tension there. Jesus brings no condemnation. Instead, we bring it upon ourselves and our sin. We're already condemned through unbelief. As John told us that he who doesn't believe does not have life and stands condemned already. Jesus' judgment is based on only one requirement. Did they believe in the Son of God? 
And the reason he's been given this authority to judge is found in verse 22. The Father has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. So what title is attributed to a judge in court? They call him the honorable judge so-and-so. The person with the highest authority to judge deserves to be most honored. And here again, we see that perfect harmony in the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son does only what he sees the Father doing. To honor the Son is to honor the Father, and to honor the Father is to honor the Son. And there could, there could not be a more perfect person to judge. Look at verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the perfect judge because he's both fully God and fully man. We don't have a judge that's out of touch and has no idea what it's like to be human. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is a good and righteous judge. Make no mistake, Jesus will judge the world. The first time Jesus came, he came as a savior to seek and to save the lost. But the second time Jesus comes, he'll come as a judge. And we have a picture of that in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There will come a day when the invitation to hear and believe is no longer available. There will be a day when you will meet Jesus as judge if you do not already meet him as Lord. And he has the authority to judge because life and death is based solely on belief in him and what he will do on the cross. So these are some of the biggest claims Jesus could possibly make. He and the Father are one and they share in all things. Jesus doesn't back down from the Jews, but instead doubles down on who he is. And if we Pick back up in verse 30, we'll see that Jesus brings a firm indictment against these Jews and their lack of belief, and he does this by naming four witnesses to his identity that they've ignored. Four witnesses to to who he is that they have rejected. Now read with me beginning in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The first witness is John the Baptist. When we read of John in chapter 1, we saw he clearly and publicly declared that Jesus was the Messiah. His ministry was one big billboard pointing people to Jesus as the Messiah. And his ministry was extremely popular. He has crowds coming out in the wilderness to hear him preach. He was stirring up a lot of excitement among the Jews about a possible Messiah coming. And verse 35 says that they are willing to rejoice for a while in John's light. Jesus calls John a burning and shining lamp. That's in contrast to his own identity as the true light. John was just a smaller light pointing people to the true light. And for a while, the people got excited that the Messiah was finally coming. But for many, it was only a temporary excitement. So Jesus tells them John the Baptist was a witness that they've rejected. Then the second witness is his works. 
First John the Baptist, then Jesus's works. Verse 36 says this, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So there's a witness greater than John, and that is the works that Jesus is doing, because no one in the right mind can deny that the things he is doing are possible apart from God. He's turned water into wine. He's healed the official son and the invalid at the pool. And it tells us he has been doing many other signs. So you can imagine many more healings and things impossible for a normal person. These works are signs pointing to the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Yet, like we saw last week, the Jews could look directly at a man walking for the first time in 38 years, and instead of recognizing the incredible, glorious manifestation of God's power, they only cared that someone was doing work on the Sabbath. They rejected the witness of his works. Then the third witness is even more important than his works and of John the Baptist. The third witness is the Scriptures. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Jews esteem God's word above all else, as they should. It's God's divinely inspired word given to man. It held everything they needed to know to carry out the Mosaic law and the sacrificial system. It held the promises of the future Messiah who would reign eternally. It was their source of life, and they studied it with every ounce of energy they had. But Jesus tells them they're missing the entire point of it because it's all pointing to Him. And it is. Don't think that Jesus doesn't show up until Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus, the Son, the Messiah, is there from Genesis to Exodus to Psalms to Daniels to Isaiah to Ezekiel to Malachi. It's all pointing to Him. And here's a truth that few Christians understand. Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament. Without Jesus, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Without Jesus, it's just a history of a nation called Israel. But the truth is it's one grand story of God redeeming a people and preparing them to receive their Messiah who will set them free from bondage to sin. And they miss the whole point. I pray that we don't miss the point too. If it's been a while since you've read the Old Testament, or maybe you kind of try to avoid it because it's confusing to you, try going back through it now using Jesus as the key, like he is the cipher that helps decode what it's saying. And I promise you'll find it enriching to your understanding of the Bible as a whole. Unfortunately, these Jews who knew the scripture so well were still blind to it and its witness concerning Jesus. And he drives this home down in verse 45. And Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? To the Jew, there was no one greater than Moses. He led Israel out of slavery. God delivered his law and commandments through Moses He was the man who spoke to God like a friend. He recorded the first five books of the Bible. Moses was perhaps their greatest ancestor. And so Jesus is saying, I don't have to bring these accusations against you to the Father because Moses already has. They set all their hope in Moses because he is the giver of the law, but they missed all that he wrote about because everything pointed to Jesus. 
And if they don't believe the words of Moses, how will they believe and understand the words coming from Jesus? But there is a fourth and final witness that the other three come from, and that witness is God himself. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. This is the most damning indictment of them all. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, the religious leaders who were thought to be the most religious and pious among the people. Their job revolved around the scriptures and the temple and the sacrifices. If anyone should have recognized Jesus and accepted him, it should have been them. But Jesus says, you've never heard God's voice. They reject Jesus's words and he is the voice of God. He says, you've never seen his form. They reject Jesus and he is the perfect embodiment of God in this world. And you don't have his word abiding in you. And the proof is that you reject the one he sent. Jesus could not be any clearer that apart from him, there is no life. Apart from him, there is only judgment. These words were true when he spoke them to these Jews. And they're still just as true for us today, nearly 2000 years later. Life is found in hearing and believing the words of Jesus. These words stand both as a warning and an invitation for us today. It's a warning reminding us that we have a problem with sin. It separates us from God. It condemns us because it's treason against a holy God. And apart from hearing the words of Jesus and believing in Him, we remain dead in our sin. And as this passage tells us, Jesus will hold the whole world accountable one day. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross will be raised to the resurrection of eternal life with our Heavenly Father. But those who remain dead in their sin and wickedness will be raised to judgment for their rebellion. We will all meet God as judge one day, but will you meet Him as Savior first? It's a warning, but it's also an invitation. It doesn't say those who worked hard enough and did enough good things were given eternal life. It doesn't say those who were the smartest and made the most money and were the most popular were led into heaven. It doesn't even say those that were kind and served others selflessly and always lent a hand were given eternal life. All those things might be good, but none of those things can save. Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. It's an invitation to faith in Jesus Christ and through that receiving eternal life. And that invitation is still available to you today. And Christian, let me encourage you. Jesus is worth it. This passage reminds us that Jesus is worth everything and so much more. He's not only our Savior. He's been given authority over life and death and judgment. In the perfect will of the Father, God has exalted the Son so that for the rest of eternity, the universe declares the glory of the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And so whatever you've given up or suffered for following Christ, let me remind you, it is worth it. If you're a young Christian, the long road of obedience ahead is worth it. If you're an older saint, the life of obedience that you have lived has been worth it. Let us glory today in our Savior in the marvelous reality that each day we wake up one day closer to finally meeting our Savior face to face, or better yet, to the day He returns and makes all things new. And to that, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come.